Hello folks, welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I am your host, Simon Ward. Before I tell you about this week's guest, I am really, really excited to share with you news of our latest partners. I make a point of working with folks who have great products and who I get on with, so I'm delighted that we're going to be working a lot more closely with precision fuel and hydration. And that is also good news for you, the listener. I've known the founder, Andy Blow, for many years, and more recently, the other folks in his team. And it's been an absolute pleasure to watch their business grow. And as well as the fact that the products taste great, I also love that one of their core aims is to educate athletes about sports nutrition and to help those people find their own right nutrition and hydration path. It's a great philosophy and educating folks is very similar to the way I like to work. Going forward, you'll hear on a regular basis Andy or his colleagues on the show sharing some of their latest insights or answering your questions. And on this last point, if you have a sports nutrition question that you would like answering, please send it in to me via Beth at the triathloncoach.com and we will get back to you with an answer, the best of which will be aired on this show. Also, we have a discount code for listeners which will give you 15% off your first purchase with Precision Fuel and Hydration. And you can find links for both the discount code and the questions in the show notes below. Okay, back to this week's guest. Run coach Bobby McGee was really popular when he was on the show a couple of months back. And he's back again, this time to talk about running with power. The stride has been around for a few years now, and I've always been intrigued as to how it works and what benefits runners and triathletes will gain by using it. Bobby and I talk about the differences between using power on the bike and when running. Bobby gives us a brief rundown on exactly what the stride can do and how you can measure it to get some very important metrics that you've probably never thought of, but will really give you an insight into your running effectiveness. Things such as vertical oscillation, ground contact time, and leg stiffness, as well as the usual data like pace, running efficiency, and running power output. We also get diverted into strength training for runners and why plyometrics might be a good addition to your training if you want to run faster. And we also talk about more why more running isn't always better, even if you're running marathons or ultras. So it's another knowledge-packed episode, so buckle up and have your pen and papers ready. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back on the show, Mr. Bobby McGee. Hi, Simon. It's good to speak with you again and good to see that you've got some sunshine back home. So that's looking good. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's um, it's a pleasure, Bobby. And you, you were a very popular guest last time. Um, I think anything that where we talk about helping people to swim, bike or run faster is always uh, popular. And you certainly know your stuff. I had some, had some good feedback. So thank you for that. Um, and I, I reached out to you because on my list of to-do topics to cover for the podcast was one to talk about this little product that helps runners to measure power called the Stride. and. I then found out that you are associated with Stride and that um, you could perhaps answer some of the questions without having the sort of company bias that I might get from their PR department. So um, can you can you help me by starting off, just explain what the Stride is, how it works and how you, how you got involved? Absolutely. So I have a, 
a, a really informal relationship. And the, the way I like to build my relationships with, with these various companies is based on, on the integrity of the product and, you know, whether it really is useful for coaching and whether it really is useful for athletes. So that's where I started off. And I remember in, 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 in the early days, I saw it sort of, I used the word, the Holy grail, right? Because output in running is, is so, uh, variable rich right it's really really hard and you know growing up as i did you know we had analog stopwatches and so much has happened from from that day to now but the output with velocity has always been a challenge right they they went away from velocity on the bike a long time ago as a measurement of performance right and and they they started using power the beauty of power on the bike of course is you can do a direct power number because you can use a strain gauge on on the uh, on the axle uh, on the pedal axle. So it was it was a no brainer, and that was a huge step forward in the world of cycling because heart rate really became so ineffective um, in in a, in the acute phase, right? And then it's the same in running as well. So um, I remember in the early days when when uh, power meters started coming out and i was involved with uh, three different companies at at that point trying to find a practical way to do this right so try and use you know pressure plates or put pressure sensors in the shoes and so on and all of those proved proved cumbersome and problematic uh, and then stride came up with the idea of using um a tiny little device with a chip in it that could record um, output without the need for necessarily having a watch, which it works really, really well with a smartwatch. But uh, you you can also record data in races and things like, for example, triathletes that don't necessarily want to wear a watch. Um, you know where you can download that data afterwards. So it it started to become really exciting, and it was all about the the design of the algorithm. How the, were they going to do that, right? And I remember in the early days being begged by sports scientists not to give up on power in the early days because it really was going to be the way to go. And a lot of practical coaches that were working with athletes at that point found it to be, you know, rather glitchy, rather obtuse, rather hard to work with. Uh, but subsequently, for for years now, it's got to a point where it really is an extremely accurate device, and it is more accurate than than you know using a, a gps signal for example just because of the technology on board and the refinement of the algorithm over time so yeah i i've enjoyed this process all along and i've always felt that there needed to be a way to measure extrinsic output you know instead of looking internally at things like glucose or heart rate or blood pressure or or things like that is let's look at the actual output of the runner and then, of course, there were all those challenges of surface and incline and wind resistance and things like that that needed to be allowed for. And Stride has done so much work in that regard um, to to produce a device which is on a par with the, with the power meters that you get in the cycling world. So uh, I've always been happy to be involved with them. They were scientists first. Uh, long before they were, you know, worried necessarily about their you know their financial model they always wanted to produce mm -hmm. that but it's mm -hmm. good to say here right in the beginning 
that they designed the stride device on a physiological model. So they went the same way they did all of their lab work and so on with lactate threshold, lactate step tests, VO2 max, and that's where they started the design. So those people are not necessarily interested in the mechanical components, which I think they definitely should be, can be assured that it's a it's based on a physiological model, so you can use it the same way. So, Bobby, can you can you just explain that then? Because you you talk about it being based on a physiology model and then a mechanical model. Can you for somebody who's just not quite keeping up with us, including me, um, at the moment, is what's a mechanical model and and what will be an example of a mechanical model? And then just sort of explain why that it's important to have that distinction between those two, if you don't mind. Yeah, so if you if you uh, considered the human body like a motor car, right, the physiological model is based on tuning the engine and designing the engine. So you're trying to uh, improve heart function. You're trying to improve oxygen delivery. You're trying to improve uh, the removal of, of carbon dioxide. Um, you, you're trying to optimize that. That's the physiological model. So, you know, your training runs are based around improving that. But what people forget is, is that in the world of cycling, if your engine is good, all right, your only limiter after that is your equipment and your aerodynamics, right? So normally there's a very direct connection between your output measured on the bike through a power meter, all right, and your performance. Running is definitely not like that, right? So we have these individuals like, take somebody like Reinhold Messner, who was able to climb Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen, right? Meant that he needed a a huge engine, right? Which he does have, and he trained that engine through climbing. But Reinhold Messner is not a world-class runner. Although he's got a world-class engine, and if he had trained all of the other components, the suspension, the wheel alignment, the steering, very, very big thing in, in, in running is the transmission, right? The, the cadence, the stride length, all of those things are what would be the mechanical factors, the ground contact time, the leg spring stiffness, the stride length, the stride angle, all of those things, all right, which, which is the you know my world of run form where we're trying to improve the, the connection between the engine and, and the mechanical component, which is the actual running, right? Uh, and so when it gets to these longer distances, like Ironman, half Ironman, running the marathon, people aren't failing centrally. They aren't failing physiologically. At the very top end, they might be, but most people are struggling to stay strong and being able to transfer the power they have into the road while they're running. So if you look at somebody's heart rate when they run a 5K, it is hugely higher than what it would be if they were running a marathon. So in a marathon, the heart is not getting enough work to do because the peripherals are failing, the mechanical components are failing, the leg strength is failing, the gait is failing, and the heart's saying, well, I've got nothing to do, we'll just you know, put out 130 beats a minute at this pace. And that pace is failing because the mechanics are failing. And so what, what you're saying then is strid, the stride, correct that, is based on that physiological model, not the mechanics. Is that right? Correct, correct. But yeah. unlike all other devices, 
it produces a wealth of mechanical information as well. So if you're going to go, you know, so you strap this tiny little pod on one of your shoes, preferably always on the same shoe, all right, weighs nothing, you forget about it, you connect it to your smartwatch, all right, and it produces uh, an output. But after a run, whatever intensity, whatever zone you are in, it will say to you, what was your ground contact time? What was your leg spring stiffness? What was your stride length? All right. What was your vertical oscillation? All right. What was, you know, all, all of these little bits and pieces um, that you can go and look at. Okay. Last week when I did this workout, my ground contact time was X. All right. And now I've taken on a bit more of a plyometric program. I'm noticing my ground contact time is decreasing. So now yeah. we can distinguish between mechanical efficiency and physiological efficiency. So if you move your lactate threshold up or you are able to sustain a certain output for a long period of time, those are physiological numbers, but you can go and find out the beauty of, of the mechanical model using the mechanical model is that um, you have an opportunity to see where you are making improvements. Instead of just looking at, at the physiological markers, you can say, okay, my physiological markers are kind of steady, all right, whereas I'm definitely making some gains with my mechanical markers. So is there a, is there a point there where somebody could, um, you because know, I know we're going to talk about this in a minute, about this whole notion of having power, because I think a lot of people um, – they tell me, oh, my FTP, my running power is, is different from my cycling power. And of course it would be because it's measured in a different way. But um, where you could see your power going up because you're trying harder, but your pace is going down because you're getting more tired and less efficient. Is, is that is that possible that you could have that situation for a lot of people? Absolutely can make those connections. So remember, um, a power meter on a bike, <clears throat> if it's a direct power meter, right, it uses a strain gauge, right? So what are they using with the stride device, right? It's got a gyroscope on board. It's got a magnetometer. It's got an accelerometer. And it's also got an anemometer. Now, a lot of the smartwatches have an accelerometer, but not necessarily a magnetometer or a gyroscope. So the difference is you're using a GPS signal, all right, ground positioning signal to a satellite thousands of miles above your head when you're using the, the typical GPS watch, right? And here you have the ability to measure every single step. So if one step is slightly shorter than another because you're going uphill or you're running on a, on a softer surface that has less friction and so on and so forth, you're getting this very, very direct feedback, even about things like speed. So it's extremely accurate there. And now the, the inclusion some years ago of an anemometer which is now reading wind resistance, right? So you're running into the wind. It's being able to give you a normalized velocity uh, and a normalized power based on also reading the wind resistance, which is pretty phenomenal. So from what you've just said there, Bobby, that sounds like there's an awful lot of information that one would have to familiarize themselves with if once you start using the stride. And given that triathletes already have a wealth of information from the watch yeah. that they wear in the pool and from whatever device they use on the bike, and then 
notwithstanding the fact that they might be wearing an aura ring to measure their recovery metrics and their sleep or a whoop, you know, um, it feels like we could be in danger of having this sort of data overload and not getting any training done because we're too busy looking at graphs. Um, so are, are there are there are there certain things that you could you you know you would say as a coach, right? These are the important metrics that you need to look at. Yes, totally, totally. So Ross Tucker is very fond of saying not all data is useful, right? <laughs> so yeah. you you get, and your triathlon community is more guilty of this than your running community. Like your triathlon community is is your geeky community, right? So they they like a lot of data, but it's also an education process, right? So you could be training one type of modality for a very long period of time in an effort to overcome a limiter that you have. And the numbers are staying quite static, all right, but you're getting better, all right, or you're not getting better. And you're going to say, okay, am I looking at the right data set to really improve, right? So, for example, you're coaching an athlete to run a flat marathon versus coaching an athlete to run like Boston Marathon. Um, Your approach to that training and your loading and the type of training modalities that you are doing do not necessarily get indicated to you by your regular smartwatch. So what the Stride device is doing, it's giving you very accurate speed and distance data, right? More accurate than anything else on the market. You know, I, I know I sound like a salesman here, but, you know, people like Alex Hutchinson and so on have have determined that the, the accuracy of the Stride, Stride device is far and away greater than that of any other device. So... The things that you didn't know you didn't know is, is, okay, I've got a pretty poor ground contact time, right? That could be a mechanical reason why my running's not improving. Even though my resting heart rate's coming down, my heart rate variability says I'm fresh enough to do these quality workouts, I'm not getting better. What can I do to increase my ground contact time, decrease my ground contact time? Or what can I do to increase my leg spring stiffness? Or, wow, I've got a lot of vertical oscillation. So I'm spending a lot of time in the air going up and down. And not only that, the stride device can now measure how much power I'm actually using to go up and down. I can decrease that and increase my performance, not only make myself more durable, but increase my performance. And similarly, I'm using X amount of of horizontal power that's measurable. So how much of my power am I using to move myself forward? How much of my power am I using to move myself up and down? If I decrease those through a number of activities that I can be doing, including Mm -hmm. just run training, right? Um, then I can get better. And it's it's not as complex a model as as it sounds initially, right? Because running, all running is, is your stride length times your stride rate, right? So if you want to get better, whether it's from a central perspective or whether it's from a peripheral or a mechanical perspective, I need to either increase my stride length or I need to increase my stride rate. And mostly with ultra-endurance athletes or endurance athletes, the answer lies somewhere in that stride rate area. So now how do we measure stride rate um, other than just counting our steps we, there are intrinsic factors like your leg spring stiffness, your posture, things like that, that will determine whether you can impact those positively, right? So it's 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 not as complex as, as you make it out. So I would get a, a readout from an athlete that I coach, and all of the same metrics will be there, right? I'll have heart rate if they're using a heart rate monitor of some sort, right? I'll have velocity, 
I'll have all their splits. All of these things stride, stride delivers, right? Uh, other than heart rate. But what I, what I won't have is how did they achieve that, right? So let's say an athlete is doing six times a thousand meters in, a, in some sort of a 5K workout, right? And I've got a heart rate readout that is broken, right? So they recover after each 6,000 meters. I mean, after each of those 6,000 meter repeats, right? But what I'm not seeing is, is their ground contact time getting worse as they go along, right? So is there a conditioning factor that I could be addressing uh, that I didn't even know about before that? And if I can improve that, through various interventions, now I'm improving their performance, whereas their straight-up physiological performance might be very similar, right? So with that, with these devices, you can pick up with, oh, when I started running, this was my level of mechanical efficiency, right? And 45 minutes into this run off the bike, a lot of those things have fallen apart. So I don't need cardiovascularly con conditioning. I need peripheral conditioning. I need more muscle endurance. I need more leg spring stiffness. What is causing those things to fall down, right? So it doesn't, it's not really as complicated as it looks, right? Because the readout has, and you can choose those datas. I normally look at stride length per intensity. So I'm comparing zones to intensity. So you're doing that six times a thousand. The athlete's doing really, really well. They come from a swimming background, all right? So they've got a big engine. But as soon as they put those 5,000s together in a 5K off the bike, mm. suddenly their drop-off is 7, 8, 9, 10% versus that person from a running background or is skilled as a runner, their drop-off is only about 3%. So you can very quickly pick up that there's specific conditioning that we need to do for this person to improve their performance. It's, it's magnificent. And this is over and above the ability to utilize you know, WKO type approach with the cycling now in running. So you can look at this long-term improvement because this power number remains relevant no matter what the surface is, what the incline is, what the wind resistance is, all of those things. Now you get this longitudinal data set that makes a lot more sense than a velocity data set over time. I, uh, I As you were talking there, Bobby, I was reminded of um... – a piece of research that somebody pointed me towards called the relationship between age and running mechanic biomechanics by a guy called Paul DeVito and his um, and his team, and they looked about how um, the spring spring to ping, as my physio called it, and the the strength of the you know the foot and the Achilles tendon and the calf complex in in that whole ground reaction force time and how that and how that decreases with age, and therefore when you hear anecdotally of athletes in their 50s saying, well, I just don't feel like I've got the bounce that I used to have. Now, I guess that would be something that using a stride would tell us. If we had that data from 10 years ago and then as you could measure it, um, that would help That would help folks to see what the age-related decline was, but also what, what type of training impacts um, were going to slow down that decline because i guess we can't halt it all together we can just slow it down so we're not slowing down as slow as as fast as everyone else if that makes sense yeah exactly and and so human nature is to do more of what you're good at and so mm -hmm. that research has been around since the 70s right that the calf complex and the achilles response of the older runner 
decreases more rapidly than, say, the quad muscles and the glute muscles and the hamstring muscles, right? So uh, you can right now, even as uh, to make it as simple as possible, you can look at your leg spring stiffness now. And you can go, okay, so I'm going to do six weeks. I'm going to do some strength work, and then I'm going to do some plyometric work, right? So you go into uh, uh, that kind of running specific strength and power program. Watch your leg spring stiffness numbers come up. Watch your performance go up commensurate with that. And realize, oh, okay, I probably don't need that length of long run, right? So because we also early research has shown us that the more – slow endurance work you do it's very very good for your conditioning levels all right but you lose leg spring stiffness there was that famous anecdotal study of of salazar and uh pete fitzinger and a, and a bunch of guys that were top marathon runners uh you know in the 90s where they did when they were at their peak fitness they did a standing high jump test right and they uh they had a certain number, vertical height, let's say with those guys, probably in the 25-inch range, maybe if they were lucky, right? Um, and then when they were at the end of their recovery phase, they did a standing high jump test with them again, or right, a vertical jump test. And they were much better vertically when they were unfit, right? So you're talking about um, losing explosive power, not only as you get older, but the more endurance work you do, the more explosive power you lose. And in a sport like triathlon, where you need some explosive ability uh, and you need some muscle endurance, that you now have a device where you can measure that. Say, oh, wow, over the last two years, I've been doing a lot of um, you know Ironman-type training, and I've noticed I've lost a lot of spring and a lot of bounce. So now as a normal person, you say, I'm just going to avoid 5 and 10K. I suck at them. I'm no longer good at them, right? But if you could just do a very small series of interventions over a short period of time, three to six weeks, now suddenly those 5K times come up. And we all know that when your mechanical range, your stride length and your stride capacity improves, Mm -hmm. now that works all the way through up to your your run off the bike in Ironman, for example, you know, because you're now able to sustain as a percentage of your max a faster velocity, a mechanically faster velocity. So again, back to the car analogy, right? If you have a car that's set up to be real comfortable at, at 100 miles an hour, it's an incredibly good car and a very efficient car mechanically at 65 miles an hour. But if the top end speed of your car is only 70 miles an hour, at 65, it's shaking like a bucket of bolts, right? It's really struggling to mm-hmm. go along. So this helps you increase your stride capacity so that your e- e- economy at your long-distance racing velocity is much greater because you're running at a much smaller percentage of your actual uh, speed capacity. Does that make sense? Oh, it does, Bobby, yes. And I, I'm just nodding along here thinking – Listeners will probably feel like I just get guests on to support the arguments I have all the time. Um, you know, I, I keep saying to people, you know, as you get older, maybe you don't need to do so much of that long distance running. It feels comfortable chugging along and you feel like you're avoiding injury, but you should be doing more of this stuff that's that you're actually losing. And, and then I get Bobby McGee on and he's saying exactly the same. And it's like, oh, you're just looking for confirmation bias, Simon. But, you know, the more, the more swim coaches I talk to, the more they talk about, efficiency and effectiveness in the pool is probably better than just smashing up and down as fast as you can. 
the more run coaches I get on, they talk about being effective and having good posture and having that spring and bounce and doing more sort of gentle plyometric work. <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. I, I While you were talking then about um, stride length and stride rate, I, I wrote down central nervous system because that's another thing that I've noticed over the years that if somebody's fatigued, you know, you can get these little tests like the tap test, which is something a little app you can download for your phone and you can tap it with your forefinger and see how many taps you can do in, in a certain time. Um, I've noticed that but reactions, um, that your ability to bounce, that perhaps you you feel a bit more awkward or clumsy if you're running through the woods and the trees. When I'm tired and everything feels like I'm running through treacle, and I've had athletes anecdotally say this as well, and then, and then two days later, you go out and do the same run and feel like a different person. And it's 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 not because you needed cardio, rest cardiovascularly, it's because you needed to let the central nervous system rest. And of course, as most physiologists will tell you, the central nervous system needs a lot longer to rest, doesn't it? That's why sprinters sit on the side of the track for so long between their maximal efforts, because whilst they're aerobically recovered, the, the you know the nerves aren't ready to fire quickly again. And so, yeah, sprinters don't move until it's 20 plus degrees Celsius, right? They don't, they don't yeah. want to train because it's really not good for them from a central nervous system aspect to, to train when it's very cold. Yeah, my, my other point on that was as well, then that I guess if you're using, if you're using the, the stride regularly, um, that, that would also indicate fatigue. You know, it'd be, it would give you some clues as to things to look at if. And metrics are going down while you're training. And I guess if you're the sort of person who is doing some recovery metrics as well, then you'd have a lot of things pointing towards into the same area. Like you probably need more restaurant than going out training today. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah. No, no, there is there, there are recovery modalities that you can use. And I've for a long time been a strong proponent of this concept of central recovery and peripheral recovery aren't the same thing. You could be feeling fine centrally, had sufficient mm. rest, right? might be 48 hours, but you could still feel your calves are tight or your quads are tight or something like that, even three, four days late after a quality workout, you know? And the nice thing with the central nervous system conversation with power is that you can, for example, do something like, like rope jumping, right? Skipping, things like yeah. that where that clumsiness that you feel on the trail is being addressed in a very controlled environment, but you also measure it. It's very quick to measure, all right? So a lot of the work that we do, for example, Matt Pendal and myself do with, with an athlete like Ben Canute is he's doing a lot of this explosive activation stuff the morning of and the night before he goes out and does a, an Ironman race. You know, he's, he's training for, for Roth at the moment, which is, you know, uh, going to be upon us very soon. And a lot of his work is doing exercises like an exercise we call the bear, which is a very advanced plyometric exercise over a very short alactic period of time. But it's helping him tremendously at the start of the race to be mechanically efficient. So he's not moving too slowly at the beginning. He doesn't, he doesn't have this low cadence and he's kind of sloppy because he's trying to save himself physiologically. No, he's activated. He's getting a lot of rebound, which we can pick up from stride. So he's getting this, this wonderful rebound at the beginning of his run, even though his training has been building up to a very long race for him because he's normally a, a PTO um, 70.3 athlete. Mm-hmm. 
that's really interesting. I, I used to work with some swimmers and we used to have them on the poolside doing what we called, I, I called it kinetic chain work. So before they, before they started to do some explosive starts off the blocks, we used to, we used to get the weights onto poolside and have them do three heavy squats followed by some plyometric jumps. And then they would do one dive start and we could dive. We could, we had a block set up so they could go across the diving pit. So that, which is only 12 and a half meters, uh, um, no, 16 meters wide. So you can measure it a very short period. And it was really interesting after two or three weeks of that, how all of the swimmers were saying that they felt like they were getting much better starts. Now that's something you wouldn't necessarily associate with endurance athletes, is it? That whole, um, kinetic chain activation but so I'm really interested to hear um about that work you're doing with Ben Canute because it seems like most people would completely ignore that if you're doing anything longer than a, a you know an 800 meter race for instance on the track that is yeah yeah so so a lot of measuring devices for example are ineffective under 30 seconds of work and they're ineffective under a minute's worth of work so they're kind of glitchy they don't they don't give you accurate feedback for that first 30 seconds to a minute of work but if you look at what's happening in endurance events one of the greatest peripheral economy workouts you can do is speed endurance work right so it's uh, uh i call it uh, k pump work or potassium pump work where you're doing 30-second uh, bouts of exercise at your maximum 30-second effort and no less than 95% of your maximum 30-second uh, effort, all right? And so what is that impacting? It's actually impacting your economy. It's making the biggest difference when you're running a marathon, when you're running a, a marathon off the bike, right? So it's kind of strange that 30 second work has an impact uh you know after you've been exercising for 6 hours now it's starting to play its role in refurbishing that potassium ion relative to the sodium ion so that your legs are still able to contract effectively when they are extremely fatigued and that's the way you train that pump mechanism all right and so you can figure out your improvement by doing that you know, by using this kind of device, you can say, okay, wow, I'm getting better. My power output over 30 seconds is significantly higher than when I started this, this kind of work. And it's very accurate. That's why the stride is so good for track athletes and even sprinters, because it can measure not only uh, recovery, peripheral recovery, it can also measure acceleration very effectively. What what sort of recovery bouts do you get then for those thirty second efforts? Are they quite short or are they are they quite lengthy no, in order no, to no, get they full recovery? They extremely long. They they stupid. They like they like uh, one to three, one to four. So if you were you doing know, so you're, you're doing the thirty second bout, ninety seconds of yeah. recovery. So you're getting a every rep you do is a, is getting back to full quality, and the the aim is to achieve the same quality with each repetition, I guess. Yeah. So the more powerful the athlete is, the more deeply they can train that mechanism, mm. the more recovery they need, right? So if you watch a 400-meter athlete running a 60-second 500, for example, which is beyond the realm of comprehension for us, right? Um, but they would need upwards of 7 to 10 minutes to recover from that. So when I'm using this with my elite triathletes, I might start off with doing – six or eight by 30 second hills 
They would put their hands on their knees at the top for about 30 seconds. They would slowly walk down the hill. They'd rest another 30 seconds to a minute before they go. So they're resting at least, you know, they're doing 30-second hills on three minutes at the very least. So they're resting Mm -hmm. two and a half minutes or three minutes between repetitions of that. So they're not getting a lot of mileage in that workout. And then there's another rule of thumb too, right? If they're not getting to within 95% of their best 30-second effort, all right, they get one more chance to get there. And if they don't, the workout's over because it's now just a dangerous workout because they're no longer capable of achieving that kind of mm-hmm. velocity. And it's and you can do it on the bike as well. You know, it's, it's obviously safer on the bike. It's hard in the water to recruit enough um, mm. enough muscle to do that effectively in the water, but it's it's possible for very very effective swimmers. Okay, let, let's go back to that um, Alex Hutchinson um, thing that you mentioned. He he's written an article, hasn't he, that um, we can share a link to in Outside Magazine about how it changed his using the stride changed his thoughts on power for runners. Can you can you just um, elaborate on that a little bit, please, Bobby? Sure, and I would put that in, you know, in in your notes for for people to go and look at that article of Alex Hutchinson's because you know Alex is one of the premier writers, you know, writes for Outside Magazine and so on, and he really, really is a, a smart gentleman and a very, very nice gentleman, and I can definitely uh, recommend his book uh, as well. Um, I, I might have mentioned it the first time you and I spoke, uh, and and you put it in that reading list. But uh, he started off being incredibly skeptical because he he doesn't mess around, right? He goes out and tests stuff and gets expert opinions and so on before he delivers an opinion on a, on a, on a device. And uh, initially, Alex, on the, when power started becoming a thing, uh, he said, "No, it's it's still got a long way to go. It's not very effective. It's it's uh, the data's up and down and so on." And very soon after that, he almost published an apology. He said. Well, this has got so far down the line now, it's extremely effective. It's a very useful tool. It might be one of the best tools you can get as a as a performance, uh, you know, as a performance tool in the arsenal of every level of runner, right? I mean, simple little things like testing super shoes. I've just done a little bit of research on super shoes with average runners. All right, and they found that the 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 gain might made by average runners with super shoes is not nearly as good as it is with with faster runners, right? So the slower runners, you know, the the eleven minute milers and so on, are getting about half the advantage, and even some athletes are are not getting advantage at all. They're actually getting limited, and so if you use a power device. You can actually say, "Oh, okay, it's clear that I'm getting an advantage from these these shoes, right?" So, uh, with a number of my athletes, when choosing between the various options that their sponsor gives them, they will choose their shoes based on workouts where they doing single repetitions. Ben, for example, might do 2.4 kilometer repetitions or even three kilometer repetitions, and he'll change shoes with each repetition and then afterwards we'll go look go back and look at the data to see which shoe is most effective for him wow that's um that's that's a fantastic insight there because i've had several conversations with athletes who are saying you know i'm I'm going to buy some of these shoes because they're going to give me this for uh for the iron man you know and they've never worn them before um but they're thinking you know free free gains well not free gains are they they're quite expensive gains of time but 
Um, that, that's that's really interesting. And I, I take your point entirely about Alex Hutchinson. Alex has been a guest on this show. We talked about some of the findings in his book. Um, so, yeah, I've got got a lot of respect for Alex and uh, he writes some great stuff and we'll definitely point people to his book again and to that article. So, Bobby, let's get, let's get on to some practical stuff now. Um, you, you know what triathletes are like. You work with a lot of them. They're eager to try out new things if they think there's some advantage or some some sort of uh, marginal gains that they can get. So, um, is the stride for everybody? Are there certain people who shouldn't be um, getting into it or can everybody benefit from it if they're patient enough to learn how it works properly? Yeah, and and again, uh, stride support is so good, right? So if you if you get yourself a membership, you get a device, and you get yourself a membership, and you have you know you have that dashboard. It's it's really easy to access information if you're confused or if you're struggling to get that that going. But just the sheer fact that it's such an accurate device, right? As I as I said to you, it might be it might be a little hard for your ego, right? Because you you run your regular route and your watches, or, and it's tree lined, and and you're going past a, a a couple of substations and so on, and you think that that your regular route is four miles long, and it turns out it's actually only three point eight miles long, but. Just that alone, the accuracy of the device in terms of measuring speed and measuring distance makes it worthwhile. And if you look, you know, look at the cost of of that device, it's not overwhelming at all, right? Uh, but I really believe, especially, you know, working on your own with with longitudinal data, like you're looking year after year and you're looking month after month at your improvement, it just gives you. A, a level of granular insight that you wouldn't have before, you know, in terms of like, all right, I didn't run faster on this route. Did I make any improvements at all? But it now, now you say saying, okay, this was a this was a humid day, or it was a rainy day, and so the road surface was a little slipperier, and you don't know how to equate for that. But if your power numbers are showing, okay, that was an improvement, then it was a real improvement, right? And it wasn't some other variable that's telling you that, no, you're not going any faster because you didn't go any faster, right? But it could show you, okay, you went considerably better today because you put out eight watts more for the entire course or something like that, right? So, and working with those zones, right? So now suddenly you're doing, you've got some some data from your half marathon, right? And your half marathon says you, your average power was this, right? And now you're going to do a half marathon type workout. And because you're fractionalizing it, you're doing so like six by five minutes or you're doing something like that. And you look at those power numbers and they don't relate at all to your half marathon. And you go, okay, well, maybe I should do two more and try and get it a little faster or a little higher power number than than what my half marathon is, right? So there's a number of ways you can either use the test that they provide to determine what your zones are. And to, for me, a bit of inside information, I like to work on zone one and two, also using heart rate to determine those two, because zone one and zone two are central conditioning intensities as well right you are doing good work for your leg muscles and so on but you also so i would i would equate heart rate with zone and one zone one and zone two but when you get to zone three zone four zone five and i use six for 30 second power and i use seven for a lactic power sub nine second power when i'm working with my athletes 
even even if I'm working with with a, a slightly slower age group individual, I would still have those those seven areas, right? But also, just like uh, you know, with a performance management model, you need about thirty days worth of variable work: some speed work, some hill work, some long runs, some easy runs. All of that in there. And then they will kick out your zones for you. And those are pretty, pretty effective that way. Myself, I have specific workouts. I'll have a specific VO2 max workout on a hill that I will do every three or four weeks or so during my VO2 max phase or during my lactate threshold phase. I will use something like four by five minutes with two and a half minutes recovery. And then I'll move that up to six by five minutes. And then, but my power numbers there will be much more accurate because as the weather changes and uh, as other variables come into play, um, I'm able to get a number that is far more glitch-free than, say, velocity or heart rate. You know, it might be a hot day, et cetera, et cetera. And, And heat shows up in a decreased power number, but at the same time, you still know that, you know, that your data is an actual output number. There's some anecdotal evidence that people who do hill repeats on dirt right next to asphalt, so the pitch is exactly the same, right, that to run the same velocity up that hill, you need uh, 10% more power to run the same velocity on the dirt than you would run on the asphalt, you know, just anecdotally seeing that kind of thing. So you'd, you'd have a route near your house that Sometimes it's wet, sometimes it's it's dry, sometimes it's smooth, sometimes it's a little uneven, and your power numbers will give you a good readout. That's why trail runners love power, right? Because it's really hard to equate output other than elevation gain on trail running. But once you have a power meter, now you can go, okay, this was the level that I ran this route at. Immaterial, whether it was 4.7 miles or 6.2 miles, um, which is, you know, pace makes no no sense at all when you're running on trails. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about triathletes that love using power. And often they'll go and do a 20-minute power test. Or if you're somebody that's connected with Stephen Siler, he says, well, it's a measure of one-hour power, so you should go and do a, a test over one hour, which is particularly unpleasant. Um, what you're saying here really is that you need to build up a range of power outputs over a period of time. So unless you're working with somebody who's experienced like you, you won't really get a good idea of your powers until you've got this this broad range built up over a period of time. And I, I guess that's a bit like the WKO thing where it will tell you this is your peak 20-second power, this is your peak one-minute yeah. power, and it, and it does that from assessing almost like artificial intelligence, assessing all the data, crunching it, and then putting it all together in that little descending graph. Yeah, f- folks that are interested in that can go and look at some of Steve Palladino's work. Steve has done wonderful work with runners and power that explains that really, really nicely. But the two things, you know, one of the things you asked me about was, oh, so is what is the power in running that is equated to your functional threshold power, right? And uh, so FTP, uh, using the power device, is called your critical power. But your critical power is time dependent, right? And so you get a, a, a... you get yourself a graph that's really, really useful, right? And it's called your your power duration curve. So in other words, what kind of power do you produce over one minute? And then how much does that power degrade to two minutes and five minutes and 20 minutes and 30 minutes and 45 minutes and one hour? All right. So I use that power duration curve 
or my marathon athletes, right? And so it's so much easier when they run a marathon to say, look, your power ceiling is, you know, this kid that I just worked with in Boston, she ran a four-minute PR in Boston on a terrible day, rainy, pouring down rain. She got caught behind a lot of people at the start, and yet she was still able to eclipse uh, her PR by four minutes, um, and her PR was set on a very flat, uh, simple course, right? Uh, and that was paying attention to not exceeding that power number in the early miles, right? Saying, look, this is how how long for two hours and 45 minutes, I can put out this amount of power. Anytime I go above that power, just like the bike in Ironman, right? Just like the bike. If you go, if you have too many spikes over that average power that you can sustain for the whole whole uh duration of the course you're just going to run out of gas you just can't you can't sustain that right and so we set her a power number of 212 and i think she uh no 213 and i think she averaged 211 for the race course despite running so much faster in the second half because she had to because she got slowed down so much in the beginning but going up those hills at newton you know where she was feeling good but she had to stay under that power number because if she was going to blow it going up those hills she was going to run into the same kind of trouble that even elliot kipchoge ran into right with with his quads failing him in that downhill course and then again a good example there a lot of the training that i did with this athlete was plyometric in nature power in nature so that she could withstand the hammering on the downhill right so you can see that a plyometrically trained athlete in triathlon will be able to deal with the power output on the bike so much better when they get to the run if they train that way and their improvements in those domains can be seen by looking at the power data. I love the reference again, Bobby, to uh, using plyometrics um, and particularly that eccentric strength, dealing with the down, the down bits, the uh, the landings, and and also I think you see particularly towards the end of a, a long distance triathlon, and maybe in some runners towards the end of a marathon, how people are starting to collapse in the hips. They're sinking lower. They're sitting lower. And I, I guess that's a function of the quads just not being able to support the body and the glutes not being able to keep somebody high. Um, but that then affects stride frequency and st- stride length, doesn't it, as well? You, you've just lost that ping and that sort of um, that stretch shortening yes, complex. Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of like you want to start um, – there's an interesting little anecdote out of the world of marathon running, right? Um, your taper needs to be longer if you're going to race in a downhill race, wow. you know, and yeah. yeah, because you have to recover so much more deeply from a muscular perspective, right? But also in the same vein, you have to be so much plyometrically stronger in running than you need to be in cycling and in swimming, right? So because running is primarily an eccentric contraction sport, right? So if you think about it, when you put your foot down on the ground, you're Tibanteria has to decelerate your forefoot to the ground if you're a heel striker, which most people are, all right? Mm-hmm. And then similarly, your quad is lengthening under load uh, as you absorb shock with your knee, mm-hmm. right? And then when you are coming off the ground, if you're coming off the ground effectively, now you're working eccentrically with, with your hip flexors as well. They're getting long out the back. So the Achilles tendon, the soleus, the quad, uh, the hamstring big time when you're swinging your back, your leg through back under your body to reset your foot onto the ground, that is eccentric deceleration of your shank by your hamstring muscle. 
And so we know from research that eccentric muscle contraction is the hardest thing for the muscle to do. It creates the most micro damage. It's the hardest to recover from. So you have that weird um, dichotomy, right? When you're running a short race with a downhill, you rip the downhill. You go down the downhill as fast as you can because you're not fighting against gravity. Gravity is helping you. You're increasing your speed without a cardiovascular load, right? Whereas in a long race, you have to be particularly careful of going down the downhills. You have to be soft. You have to be springy. You have to have good posture. You have to know how to run a downhill. You need to have habituated downhill running because that eccentric damage that you're doing going down that hill is going to come back to haunt you within the same event later on, right? So that's that's part of what that that wall is in the marathon is the those legs that are, that have failed. So it's a it's a a fascinating. Um, conundrum that we have, you know, we do more and more volume in softer and softer environments, but at some point in time, we have to go and condition ourselves eccentrically. And we have to do those little jumps off a box and we have to do those, that rope jumping and we have to do some of those quick steps and those tap drills and all those things that show up in, in run form that are designed to not only condition, but improve your function, improve your understanding. You know, that's why things like A skips and stuff become important to every level of runner because mm-hmm. you should be beating gravity to the surface so that you'd reduce eccentric loading. All right. And then the old bugbear of the of the triathlete, right? Sitting in that perfectly time trial aerodynamic position for hours and hours and hours, both in training and in the race. And then getting off and having shortened those hip flexors tremendously, now you're putting more eccentric load on your quads because you can't extend. And so you can't load the quads from an eccentric standpoint elastically to get your leg back and you have to bring your leg back. So now you're taking these quads that have suffered concentrically for hours on the bike and you asking them to operate eccentrically, and, and they, ca- they can't do that. And so now you add to their load, and the glutes go, okay, we're on holiday. All we had to do is keep your, your pubic bones off the bike saddle because you can't get your thigh back, so you can't use your glutes when you're running, right? So all of this is a, is a, is a you know, the fascinating complexity of why run form is so critical in terms of how much time you've invested in your physiological conditioning and you haven't invested enough time in your peripheral conditioning and you're not getting a performance that's commensurate with the engine that you have. Bobby, do you you know if anyone's done any research where they've looked at folks getting off the bike and having that sort of pre-fatigue? Yes, yes. And then then seeing seeing about what the – if you could just let me finish because this is the final bit is like – you, you pre-fatigue somebody on the bike and then you, you get them off the bike and you see how inefficient their running is compared to when they're fresh and then see what the benefits of an intervention of plyometrics, purely plyometrics, will be on that, whether you can regain a lot of that bounce. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So they've done research in Italy, they've done research in the US, and they've done research in Australia. And they've done uh, run-to-run and bike-to-run activities. And in every single case, bike-to-run has a far greater negative impact on people's running kinematics and how they run, right, off the bike. So much so that the research that the Australians did showed that 
over 30% of age group triathletes lose complete access to their normal running kinematics when they run off the bike. So, um, and, and with the pros, it's quite a high number too. It's like 13 or 17, I can't remember what the number was, but they, they actually on video do not run the same way as when they run normally. Now, nobody runs the same way when they first get off the bike. The majority of people get to their running, to their normal running gait after a period of time. So our job as coaches is to shorten that period of time and to teach them running skills and to teach them pacing, right? Mm. So a, a researcher who showed postural changes and uh, kinematic changes uh, running off the bike was, uh, was a gentleman by the name of, I think his name is Migliorini, an Italian researcher. And then just very recently, not a super eloquent study, but a, a university study was done here in the US where they compared uh, running a 5K after hard running versus running a 5K after hard biking. And you're so much more mechanically efficient measuring these factors that we've just spoken about running after running than you are running after cycling. So a lot of these things become tremendously impaired by the bike itself. The priming effect of running before running with the same kind of motion doesn't make any big difference other than straight up fatigue to your run afterwards. But the bike, with the way that you move, makes a tremendous impact on your running ability. And so then that, that's the next part of the research I'd like to see is what would happen if we had an intervention of plyometrics and skipping and all of that sort of um, eccentric type work to somebody's efficiency off the bike compared to when they hadn't done that? Because that might then yes, that might then point triathletes in the direction of actually you might need to spend a little less time doing all of those long easy runs <laughs> and a little bit more time doing this stuff that's counterintuitive. Exactly. So there's uh, there was a study done by a Belgian researcher. No, sorry, Danish. I think his his name is Bangsbo, and he did the oh, yeah. the, the yeah. K pump research. Is that Jens Bangsbo? Is he the guy that did all the football stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he did research with runners. I think they ran a a three k time trial and a sixteen k time trial that they did, and then he intervened with this thirty second work. All right, and found no changes in VO two max, no changes in lactate threshold, but improvements in performance working peripherally with that thirty second type of work. And then I saw a study, and I, and I know this study was done around about. 2006, where they looked at running economy from a perspective of oxygen utilization at, at a fixed velocity. And the one group did plyometrics and continued with their normal training. The other group didn't do plyometrics, continued with their normal training. So the, 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 the group that continued with their normal training on paper, they looked at their, at their efficiency. But those that had done plyometrics were able to run faster even though they were not necessarily as efficient. So they yeah. overcome overcame that efficiency deficit by doing that plyometric type work. So there's quite a, a lot of convincing evidence out there, right? And as Ross Tucker also pointed out to me, because I was enamored with, uh, with the K-pump work for, for a long time now, but he said also you're getting 
athletes that never train that level of power, never train that level of speed, never train themselves to be able to go at that intensity. So the the advantages that they gain by doing this run form type of work that that Matt and I put forward are increased balance, increased stability, increased power, you know, increased resilience. All of those things are also part of that kind of training over and above just what's happening with the potassium pump and economy, right? So your your message is absolutely spot on. We know that just doing endurance work is a disaster. You know, the 80-20 model tells us that. We know of athletes that are incredibly successful who just do endurance and alactic work. So the alactic work is the power run form kind of work, and either working on their stride length, their velocity, stuff like that. So they're doing two, three times a week, they're doing sub nine second strides, and the rest of the time they're doing easy running. And mm-hmm. they're doing really, really well in endurance events. It's different when those events require really, really good lactate threshold numbers. Um, but if they are Ironman triathletes and so on, they really don't want to be messing around with too much lactate threshold stuff. They want their physiology to find it hard mm-hmm. to produce lactate. They don't want to produce lactate. It's going to create problems for them, right? So they, But they want to have a high VO2 max. So it's a it's a conundrum, right? It's a it's a conundrum, and a lot of that is answered, especially with your runner who's thirty five plus years old. They're going to get the most bang for their buck getting back to that strength power model. You know, wow. uh, you know the, the 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 feedback that we get from people who take the time to do run form, do that twelve week program, get a little stronger, get a little bit more elastically powerful, get a little bit more uh, uh, a bit more range going on. Their, their improvements in their key events, which are marathon, Ironman, and stuff like that, is phenomenal. They're just much more durable. They're able to sustain their pace for a much longer period of time. They're able to get their, their pace from their physiological capabilities up because they now have a peripheral platform that makes them so much uh, more effective. And I, I love the fact that we've dived down that rabbit hole Bobby, because you know, I could. That was where I originally started out working with athletes. Was sort of the intervention of strength and conditioning, and you know, bolstering and making that framework more resilient, so that you could carry that engine back back to your car analogy. Um, but if we if we get back onto the come out of the rabbit hole and get back onto the original purpose of the call, which was to talk about stride, um, I guess that all of these interventions that we talked about involving plyometrics and the caper work can can actually you can see the changes in your efficiency of running through use of the stride can't you if you've got the background data absolutely absolutely i mean things like looking at your vertical oscillation right um are a very very quick way to see that that the interventions that you're doing are working you know your loaded mobility work that sort of stuff shows up in those numbers right so you're running better and it's like anything where you do an intervention right is it the intervention that's making me go better or uh is it just because i'm more committed and i'm more um consistent etc cetera, etc cetera, right um those those are the things that are now suddenly measurable you know your your ground contact time um you can see okay in the shorter distances i i haven't lost my cadence my cadence is the same but i've got another 
two centimeters of stride length, right? Because I can now sustain the stride length because I'm stronger um, in in my in my hip complex because I've been doing some unilateral leg work. I've been, been doing some split leg work. I've been doing some kind of lunge, loaded lunge work, some plyometric work. That has allowed me to lengthen my stride length and for my for my my body to feel I can sustain a longer stride length and it's it's showing benefits. And we know that if you're a marathon runner uh, or you're an Ironman athlete or a 70.3 athlete, that if you improve those shorter distances, if you get better over 10K, for example, you are not only going to feel more confident and feel more capable as a runner, you're actually going to be more capable. And to measure those improvements is very often easier to find by looking at your power numbers than it is at looking at you know your velocity in training or even your heart rate. Bobby, I know that you're not uh, you're not an employer of Stride or employee of Stride, and you do, you've got no skin in the game there. But I think you've done a great selling job to our listeners in terms of encouraging them to at least consider this. And if they do think that there's a little bias from you, then they should go and read Alex Hutchinson's um, article and really truly read about somebody who was very sceptical about this and had his mind changed by using the product and seeing the data and using his analytical mind to work out actually which was the best path. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. It just makes uh, it, it really makes both the athlete and the coach's life a little easier. And you know, what have we done in the, since the seventies? Right, we have increased the strength of the microscope. Right, so these are all devices that are telling us more and more about why we are what we are doing is effective or not effective, right? They're not making us better runners. They're making us smarter runners so we can make smarter choices, right? So, I mean, the 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 advent of the GPS is is miraculous, right? What what it's done for our sport is is absolutely amazing. I mean, you now see all these world records that are being set because they've just got that light that's going around the inside of the track, right? So technology is there to help us better analyze what we are actually doing. Right, we're not we're not gaining an unfair advantage. We're just gaining more knowledge, and we're making our interventions more accurate. And to me, that's the 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 most important thing about Stride. You know, so now you can be on a on a wet, miserable day in London, and you could be running around a park, and and it's soggy underfoot, and you dressed up to the nines. You've got so many layers of clothing on, and you and you so much heavier because everything's wet and so on. But your power numbers don't lie. You know, if you take that power device, you measure yourself, you make sure that your body mass is accurate and you're looking at your watts per kilo, you're just getting a very pure piece of information that's giving you a, a really nice three-dimensional look at whether you're improving or not, not how to necessarily improve. Bobby, as always, you have enlightened me, you've educated me, and I hope the listeners are sitting there nodding and going, yeah, actually, I'm going to try one of these now. And maybe I'll get on Bobby McGee's run form course just for good measure. And then I can do both aspects. Hey, thank you for being here, Bobby. Brilliant. Uh, Simon, always welcome. Lovely to talk to you. And we'd love to have you as a guest as well on our podcast. Bobby, once again, many thanks for being here. I look forward to chatting with you the next time because I'm sure there will be a next time. All right, Paul. Thank you so much, Simon. Lovely spending time with you. Thank you once again to Bobby McGee for joining me as guest on the show. 
please make sure you check out those show notes where you'll be able to find out how to access Bobby's 12-week run-form program. Also there, you'll be able to find the discount code for your first Precision Fuel and Hydration order, which gets you 15% off. And also, if you've got any sports, nutrition, or hydration questions, you'll be able to find the link to send them to me via Beth at thetriathloncoach.com so that we can answer the best ones on the show in a future episode. By the way, that Precision Fuel and Hydration Partnership is one of a growing number of discounts on partner products that I'm working on that we have available for members of my SWAT team, where you can get an even better discount on your Precision Fuel and Hydration stuff. It's a £30 a month membership, where you also get access to a huge range of training plans for a full range of endurance events from all the distances in triathlon and the multi-sport events, ultra trail runs, marathon runs, Grand Fondo events. In fact, you name it, we've got it. And if we haven't, and you tell us about it, then we'll create a program for you as part of your membership. We also have monthly workshops exclusive to SWAT members and free access to educational workshops on nutrition, sleep and strength. So if you'd like to know how to learn more and access these member-only benefits, please click on the very obvious link in the show notes below. Right, that's all for this week. I hope you enjoy the rest of it and I will see you on the next episode.